Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What are the books you remember reading in high school? Many of us were introduced to The Great Gatsby back then. The novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald is considered an American classic, set in the Roaring Twenties with memorable characters like wealthy bootlegger Jay Gatsby, whose love for Daisy Buchanan doesn't end well. And we can't forget Nick Carraway. He narrates the story, told in retrospect. Today, where we live, we dig into The Great Gatsby and what it means for the literary world now that the copyright has expired. Coming up, we hear from the author Niveau about her unique take on Fitzgerald's classic. Her book is called The Chosen and the Beautiful. First, what makes The Great Gatsby a classic? My next guest has read this novel many, many times, and she's written a book about it. Maureen Corrigan's book is So We Read On, How The Great Gatsby Came to Be and Why It Endures. Her name and voice will be familiar to you. She's the book critic for NPR's Fresh Air and an English professor at Georgetown University. Maureen, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here. I mentioned you've read The Great Gatsby many, many times. How many times have you read it? <laughs> I, I don't know. I've lost count. I, <laughs> at least 100. Uh, wow. I teach it every year, which is, you know, a, a great byproduct of teaching. You get to reread the books that you love pretty much every year. And uh, I, I'll tell you, it never gets old. And I will also tell you every time I teach it, students point out something that I've missed. Um it, it, that's one test, I think, of a great novel, that you always find something new in it every time you read it. Now, I understand when you first read it back in high school, you weren't a fan of The Great Gatsby. No, you know, I I, uh, I grew up in blue collar Queens. I went to high school in Astoria, which is in the novel, as everyone who's read the novel may remember, of uh, Jay Gatsby and Nick Carraway drive through Astoria in order to get to Manhattan. Um, so when I first read it in high school, I sort of had that reaction of, what do these people have to do with me? Um, they're, they're very wealthy characters. I, I, I can't relate to them. It really wasn't until I got to graduate school and I reread the novel and Nick Carraway's voice really drew me in. It, you know, that voice of yearning for his lost friend, um, that captured me. And I, I was hooked from then on. <laughs> you mentioned that you teach this uh, every year to your students. It's been nearly a century since this book was published, but it, does it still feel fresh and relevant today? What are your students' reactions? You mentioned they find something yeah. that surprises you even after reading it for so many times. They do. And mostly those surprises emerge from close reading. And, and I can tell you about one or two of them. But of course, the Baz Luhrmann movie um, is still in everybody's memory, right? So my students mostly have seen that movie. And we'll talk about that and, and sometimes how it misreads the novel. I, I think, you know, one thing that really 
grabs students once they're alerted to it is that this is our great American novel about class, about trying to make it in America and about that, that American dream. And the fact that you, it's really not something that's assured. Um, the famous last lines of the novel, so we beat on boats against the current born back ceaselessly into the past is a very weird last line for a great American novel because it tells us that we can't really escape where we came from. And um, we talk a lot about class in the novel and about Gatsby trying to be something that he's not. And of course, he's dead when the novel opens. So that, that really lets you know how effective that attempt of his is to transform himself. Uh, you mentioned uh, that, that famous line near the end of the novel, but I'm wondering if you could read a part of this book, uh, I think the end of the first chapter. Yeah, the, um, this, is, um, this is where Nick Carraway sees his neighbor, Jay Gatsby, for the first time. I saw that I was not alone. 50 feet away, a figure had emerged from the shadow of my neighbor's mansion and was standing with his hands in his pockets regarding the silver pepper of the stars. Something in his leisurely movements and the secure position of his feet upon the lawn suggested that it was Mr. Gatsby himself come out to determine what share was his of our local heavens. I decided to call to him. Miss Baker had mentioned him at dinner, and that would do for an introduction, but I didn't call to him, for he gave a sudden intimation that he was content to be alone. He stretched out his arms toward the dark water in a curious way, and as far as I was from him, I could have sworn he was trembling. Involuntarily, I glanced seaward and distinguished nothing except a single green light minute and far away, that might have been the end of a dock. When I looked once more for Gatsby, he had vanished, and I was alone again in the unquiet darkness. Mm. I can hear, I could listen to you reading that all day, Maureen Corrigan. Oh, She's well, a Thank you, but, <laughs> you know, the, I'll just butt in and say one of the <laughs> amazing things, two amazing things, when Fitzgerald first wrote Gatsby, um, that passage was not there. That passage mm. was farther on in the novel. And the second thing is Gatsby is always disappearing like that. He's appearing and then vanishing throughout the novel. And one thing that absolutely I talk about with my students, and they always find more instances of it, um, is the fact that, yes, Gatsby is dead at the beginning of the novel. The present time of the novel is 1924. Nick is remembering the summer of 1922. And doesn't it make sense that Gatsby is almost ghost-like throughout this novel because he no longer is alive? Maureen Corrigan is book critic for NPR's Fresh Air. As we talk about The Great Gatsby, uh, the copyright has expired, and we want to talk more about the legacy of this classic novel and how uh, new authors are retelling this story. Coming up, we're going to hear from Niveau about her book, The Chosen and the Beautiful. Uh, but Maureen, again, you've spent a lot of time reading this book, and you've written about it. Uh, tell us more about the characters for our listeners uh, who may not have read The Great Gatsby. 
Mm-hmm. Well, um, there are essentially uh, just it's a very tight novel. And that makes it different from almost everything else Fitzgerald ever wrote, certainly his other novels. So we have Nick Carraway, who's come to New York to sort of work on Wall Street. And he connects with his cousin, Daisy Buchanan, who's living nearby. Nick is living in West Egg, where, which isn't as Tony and um, in, in real life is, for those who know New York, is, is Great Neck. Um, and Daisy Buchanan and her husband, Tom, are living on East Egg, which is where old money lives. And also staying with Daisy and Tom are, is, is a woman named Jordan Baker, who's a professional golfer. And finally, we've got Jay Gatsby, who also lives on East Egg. He's a very mysterious, wealthy man. It's rumored that he made his millions in bootlegging. And as it turns out, Jay Gatsby and Daisy Buchanan were acquainted years earlier during World War One, when Jay met her and fell in love with her. So that's the that's the essential character lineup. And what Fitzgerald does with those tight characters is is really amazing because one thing you notice as you reread the novel is everybody is reaching as Gatsby is reaching at the end of chapter one everybody is reaching for somebody or something that they're never going to attain um you know, Tom is reaching for Daisy. Jordan is sort of reaching for Nick. There are, there are secondary characters, the Wilsons, who live in a place called the Valley of Ashes, which in real life was Corona, Queens, where there was an ash dump at the time that Fitzgerald was writing. And Tom Buchanan is having an affair with Myrtle Wilson. She's reaching for him. Uh, you know, you can go crazy with an old-fashioned blackboard diagramming this novel. And showing just how tightly Fitzgerald um, was was working. You know, and, uh, it's also a symbol-infested novel. There are 450 words for time in this novel. And yes, somebody counted them up. And it's a very time-conscious novel because it comes to an end at the end of the summer of 1922 when Gatsby dies. Uh, we heard from a listener who wanted to hear more about uh, the racism in The Great Gatsby. And I'm thinking uh, to the character Tom Buchanan, Daisy's husband, and some of the things that he says about immigration at the time. And just the parallels to the conversations we have today, Maureen. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Chapter One, w- when we meet Tom, um, who, by the way, Fitzgerald's editor, the legendary Maxwell Perkins, who edited Hemingway and Thomas Wolfe, you know, it, he, he was just um, the, the greatest editor, the one that everybody would want. Um, he said that Tom Buchanan was the most alive character in a version of the novel that he read before it, it was finally published. He said, I should know Tom Buchanan anywhere and I, I should cross the street, you know, if I saw him coming. Tom Buchanan is a blowhard. And one of the things he says in chapter one at that first dinner party is the white race is being submerged, you know, and he looks around at, at the 
the table at Nick and Jordan and Daisy and he points to them, you know, you're white, you're white. And then he, he looks at his wife, Daisy, and he hesitates for a moment kind of to needle her and says, you know, you're white too. This is a novel that is very much an embodiment of the anxieties of the late teens, early 1920s. It's worried about the great migration. It's worried worried about um, that second wave of immigration that is just coming to an end. Immigrants from Southern Europe, um, from Russia, immigrants who don't speak English, who may be darker skinned, you know, they're all in the novel. It's worried about women getting the vote and smoking and drinking and having sex outside of marriage. So there is a lot of anxiety in this novel. And I think, you know, we contemporary readers, we, we, we see the racism coming out of Tom's mouth and we're, you know, we're reassured, oh, it's the bully who's saying these things. But later on in the novel, there are other expressions of racism that come from other places in the novel. And so, uh, you know, I always sort of end my contemplation about race in Gatsby by saying, you know, the novel is all over the place. And we we can't pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, Fitzgerald, you know, he was ahead of his time. He, he wasn't a racist. He probably was in the way that most white people of the time were. Um, but the novel is looking around at a changing America. And that's one of the things that makes it very contemporary. It really can't see the future and it's anxious about the future. We've talked about some of the themes. It's a very complicated novel, but I'm wondering if you could talk about F. Scott Fitzgerald and his life and the parallels of what he was writing about. Yeah, well, Fitzgerald grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. And his father's family, you know, sort of, uh, as he always said, had breeding. Uh, actually, on his father's side, he was related to Mary Surratt, who was one of the <laughs> assassin involved in the Lincoln assassination. And and um, so, it, but he was also related to Francis Scott Key, which is where his name comes from. His mother's family um, made money in the grocery business, and so they had money. Fitzgerald eventually went to Princeton, which was one of his goals. But he later said uh, that he always felt like a fish out of water. He always felt like, you know, the scholarship boy at an expensive school. And that sense of being not quite in the club plagued him all his life. Um, and you you hear it in Gatsby. You, you hear it absolutely in, in, in the character of Jay Gatsby. Uh, Fitzgerald in 1920 published This Side of Paradise, his first novel, which he rewrote three times. And it became the defining novel of the jazz age. In fact, it gave the 1920s that name, the jazz age. And he follows it up in 1922 with The Beautiful and Damned, a novel about a marriage falling apart. And considering that he and Zelda um, Fitzgerald had married in 1920, just two years earlier. It's kind of an ominous novel for him to have written. Gats Gatsby comes out in 1925, and Fitzgerald thought that this was going to be just his runaway bestseller, as well as a critically acclaimed novel. And it turned out not to be. 
it, uh, when Fitzgerald died in 1940, he was working in Hollywood as kind of a screen doctor. And he was only 44. He died of a heart attack. Remaindered editions of the first of the first printing of the great Gatsby were still in Scribner's warehouse. That first printing had not sold out. So he died feeling that he was a failure. And, um, you know, Fitzgerald's story is heartbreaking. He was responsible for, of course, for some of his um, tragedies. He drank way too much. And he kind of did spend his talent um, in a profligate manner. But what happened to both of the Fitzgeralds is so heartbreaking. Zelda, of course, suffered from mental illness. And she spent the rest of her life from 1930 on in and out of sanitariums. And she died in the 40s as well. So theirs is a story of uh, people who rose high very early. They were, you know, when they were very young in, in, their, in their 20s. And then almost paralleling the Great Depression from 1930 on, they just fall, fall, fall farther down. Um, Fitzgerald's last royalty check was for $13.13. Wow. Tell us why the book did not take off when it was published. Yeah, you know, I read every review that I could find from 1925. And um, people seem to, the reviewers seem to fall into two camps. They either think, oh my God, he's writing about rich people again, <laughs> because Fitzgerald <laughs> liked to write about rich people. He, you know, he, he was of two minds. He, he wanted that beautiful, glossy world, and he also stood apart from it and looked at it critically, which is why it's perfect that we've got Nick Carraway sort of standing apart and narrating this novel and being somewhat cynical about that, that wealthy world. Um, so there was that, that it was the same old, same old, and then there were the reviewers, many of them, who read it as a simple crime novel. Um, and, and that makes sense. There are three violent deaths in the novel. The main character is a bootlegger. And even his name, Jay Gatsby, comes from 1920s slang for a machine gun. A gat is a machine gun. So they kind of took it as almost a lighter novel. And that was surprising. The The worst review was published in uh, Joseph Pulitzer's New York World newspaper. And the headline of that review read, Fitzgerald's latest, a dud. Fitzgerald mm. kept many of his reviews. And in his, in his archives at Princeton, you can see that review. And, you know, to think of him reading that is, um, you know, for those of us who love this novel so deeply, it, it's, it's tragic. <laughs> so Maureen, how did it go from being a dud to a book yeah. that is taught in, in schools today? And so many people have such positive feelings about it. We heard from Chris who said, I read it for the first time in high school. Every few years, I read it again. My wife yeah. says it's the perfect novel and she's right. Yeah. Oh, well, yay. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> um, it's, it's fascinating, the story of how it came back. It comes back pretty quickly after Fitzgerald's death. And 
a great story connected to the revival of Gatsby has to do with World War II. During World War II, there was this great effort by the U.S. government, by librarians, by publishers, even by paper manufacturers to get books into the hands of soldiers and sailors serving overseas. And these, they published these kind of paperback pulp editions of great novels, of mystery fiction, even of the dictionary of Margaret Mead's coming of age in Samoa. These armed services editions, as they were called, come out during World War II. It's called the biggest book giveaway in history, 123 million books. And one of the books that's chosen to be in this armed services edition um, effort is The Great Gatsby. So these, these little books, if, if, if listeners go online and just enter armed services editions, you can see what they look like. They were pulp paperbacks that were long rectangular books meant to fit in servicemen's pockets. The biggest uh, distribution, by the way, of the armed services editions was on the eve of D-Day. Every man going over in a landing craft on D-Day had an armed services edition in his pocket. And if you read that wonderful Stephen Ambrose book about D-Day, he writes about what those little pocketbooks meant to those soldiers going over you know, to fight in, in France. It's, it's really an amazing um, story. So Gatsby goes from being nowhere, from moldering in the warehouse to in 1945, having 155,000 copies published in this armed services edition effort. And from there it takes off. After the war, of course, we get the paperback revolution. Signet decides to publish um, The Great Gatsby as a paperback. We have early TV and a lot of those early television programs that were sort of, you know, the Firestone Theater or something. They did versions of Gatsby. I had an amazing experience researching this book. I went to the Library of Congress and one of the wonderful research librarians took me to a sub-basement where they store all of the high school and college American literary anthologies. And we spent a day down there pulling anthologies off the shelves and calling out dates and titles to each other. I wanted to see when Fitzgerald came back into the school syllabus. Mm -hmm. And we, we kept calling out names of his short stories, of, of selections from Gatsby. And it seems like in the late 50s, Gatsby begins to be um, distributed, at least selections of it, to high school and college students, and it begins to be talked about as a great novel. So that was um, an incredible experience because I later learned that about a month later, all of those anthologies, miles of them, were shipped off-site to a storage wow. facility because the Library of Congress, like every research library, is running out of space. 
What a great story. Maureen Corrigan, again, is book critic for NPR's Fresh Air. She's written the book So We Read On, How the Great Gatsby Came to Be and Why It Endures as we talk about this classic novel uh, this year as the copyright has expired. What does it mean for the literary world? Coming up, we hear from an author whose new book reimagines Fitzgerald's classic. It's called The Chosen and the Beautiful. We talk with author Nevo after the break. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Earlier this year, the copyright for The Great Gatsby expired, clearing the way for writers to retell the classic story set in the Roaring Twenties. We've been talking about why it's considered a classic with my guest Maureen Corrigan, book critic for NPR's Fresh Air, and she wrote So We Read On, How the Great Gatsby Came to Be and Why It Endures. Now, The Great Gatsby is a story told from the perspective of character Nick Carraway, but my next guest has retold the classic and given it a new main character. Joining us now on Zoom is Ni Vo, author of the de- her debut novel, It's The Chosen and the Beautiful. Ni, welcome to the show. Oh, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. We heard Maureen talk about what she loves about The Great Gatsby. When did you first read it and what drew you to this novel? Uh, I first read it when I was in high school, like so many other uh, American students. And what drew me to it in the first place was just how big and grand it was. I think that when you're a teenager, when you're feeling everything so strongly and so powerfully, you're drawn to stories of characters that are larger than life. And that's absolutely one of the things that The Great Gatsby gives us. It gives us characters with needs and wants that are absolutely towering. And um, that was part of where my attraction came from. Part of my attraction and my interest also comes from the fact that I was um, nearly run over in the uh, parking lot the day we started it. So Mm. there were some really uncomfortable echoes there. Oh wow! So you, I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're okay. Uh, when you retell this story, you told told it from the perspective of Jordan Baker, who I just loved as I was reading your novel. Tell us why you made that decision. I made the decision because, um, in many ways, um, Ga- the Great Gatsby as a novel feels very much uh, a novel of foils, of doubles, of repeated images that reflect each other and 
that go on to create a whole that is greater than just two parts. Um, with that in mind, it felt very much as if uh, Jordan, who herself is described in the original novel as something of an outsider, um, is a perfect reflection for Nick himself, uh, a reflection who is in similar ways somewhat reticent, but also has privileges that Nick can't touch while also having, um, while also not being allowed into the same places that Nick is allowed. And your Jordan is a Vietnamese American adoptee and a queer woman. So talk more about how you develop this character. Um, part of the joy of Jordan is the facts is that beautiful description that occurs for her when Nick comes into the house in East Egg. The idea of her as a girl balancing teacups on her chin, her militant bearing. There is something about her that stands apart and as we continue into the novel, there's a fact that as I was writing this novel, as I was reading The Great Gatsby in preparation for writing The Chosen and the Beautiful, we have um, we have Jordan entering the narrative a little bit later than everyone else. She's sitting, she is watching, she is, she is observing. And throughout the novel, uh, the original novel, she makes certain trenchant observations about the world. And the fact that she is speaking a lot less than she is seeing is was my belief even when I was reading it as a teenager. And I've always kind of wondered what was going on with her. And the idea that she is actually canonically having secret meetings with um, with Jay Gatsby himself. She is Jordan's friend from when they were teenagers. There's a lot of backstory to, to unpack there. And as I sort of opened it up, I was beginning to see a character who has a lot going on. And then I started adding demons and magic and questions about race and questions about class. And then I just shook it up really hard. And I love that she's such a strong character. Uh, she is defiant, uh, doesn't make uh, apologies for who she is. Uh, Ni. You talked about the, the fantasy element too. Can you talk more about uh, some of the, the descriptions in your novel? Yeah, the idea of magic for um, this novel felt like a very natural choice for me. We're coming into the 20s ourselves here, and as we look back about 100 years, we're looking at a very, very different world. And if there's a great analogy for the way that I use magic in The Chosen and the Beautiful, it is probably with the advent on the idea of electricity from the 1920s themselves. Electricity at that point was still this sort of wonderful, magical thing. It was still, it wasn't everywhere. There were still lots of places that did not have electricity that were not wired up to the grid. So the the advance of light and, the, and not only the advance of light, but the advance of advertisements, which were promising people all of these wonderful things. And at the time period, as advertising was still getting its feet and still beginning its great cycle, it's not something that we have to click through to get through our to get to our articles. It's not this thing that is invading our lives. It was this it, it was um, it was magic. It was a show. And um, there were a lot of promises being made. And that's, I think, what magic um, what magic does in my novel as well. It's a lot of promises. It's a lot of potential. It's a lot of danger, and there and it's um, a growing and deepening shadow as well. Even if the people involved can't quite feel it or see it. Mm. Can you talk more about something that a lot of the characters are drinking at this time? Demoniac. <laughs> oh right. Uh, okay. So the first thing to remember is I'm actually very bad at alcohol myself. Um, I'm bad at metabolizing it. I'm bad at drinking it. I'm bad at appreciating it. So for me, demoniac is in many cases what I imagined uh, alcohol must be when I was a kid. You know, um, not only is uh, 
The Great Gatsby itself a fairly hard drinking novel in every sense of the word. Um, our society is a hard drinking society as well. So we have a whole mythology around alcohol. We have we have a lot of stories built up around it, both enjoying it and being destroyed by it. And so I thought that, you know, when I tried it as a teenager, I thought it had to be better than it was. <laughs> so uh, Demoniac is, uh, in, in many cases, m what my teenage self imagined alcohol must be, which is magical, exotic, it's life-changing, it is uh, irresistible. And unfortunately for me, it was just, a, you know, just a, a, a beer in a field someplace, wondering what, what it was all about. And then the, this idea of, of demon blood, can you describe that for us? Um, all right. Uh, the idea of demon's <laughs> blood, the idea that it is actually something hellish, something that actually costs life from some immortal supernatural creature. Um, I wanted it to make it otherworldly. I wanted to set it apart. It also has a sort of a strange history in the novel itself where it begins as something of an old fashioned drink that becomes newly fashionable with uh, the devils in New York. Um, the idea of hell as just one more, excuse me, as one more invasive imperial power in the novel was so, so much fun to play with. Um, and it draws, it takes precedent from such things as prohibition, as the opium wars in China, um, and a lot of different places where we're dealing with illicit substances that come in and that uh, have a certain perception in the world that they in, that they invade or occur in as um uh I, i'm sorry like i'm sorry i've completely lost my train of thought as, <laughs> we were just as, curious uh, to talk about more of the, the demon's blood and what the symbolism was in your novel <laughs> mm -hmm, right right um and like i said it, it's think of it as an invasive force as a poisonous one and also as an insanely attractive one there we go i think i got that <laughs> Uh, another element uh, of magic in this book uh, involves cutting paper. Can you describe that for us? Oh, um, paper cutting magic is something that is nearly unique to Jordan as an Asian American woman in the United States. Um, paper cutting magic is deeply associated in my book with, uh, with East and Southeast Asia. And to kind of get where I did with it, I was doing a lot of uh, research into paper cutting, both as a folk art in the past and as a fine art today. And um, from my research, it comes from uh, China originally and, be and has spread out to become uh, something that is found in many, many Asian countries. And one of the things that struck me about it was it was um, originally just a decorative, a decorative art that was performed with scraps. It was uh, originally just used with scraps of paper. Before that, uh, people used fabric or leather. It was used to beautify the home. There was there was no external element to it. And that struck me as such such an intimate thing. You have these scraps of things that would otherwise be thrown away and you're using them to make the environment you live in more bearable, um, more lovely and more pleasant for the people that you care about. And if Jordan's magic comes from anywhere, it comes from that, even if it's not something that she as a person takes a lot of importance from at the moment. You're hearing Nevo here on Where We Live. Uh, she's the author of her debut novel, The Chosen and the Beautiful. It's a beautiful retelling of The Great Gatsby, told from the perspective of Jordan Baker. And Vo has written this character as a queer Vietnamese American uh, in the 20s. Uh, Nia, I'm wondering if you could read a little excerpt uh, from your book, The Chosen and the Beautiful. Ah, of course. Gatsby sprang up the delicate staircase to the upper story, drawing out shirts for me and Daisy to see. 
Look at this, he cried, shaking out a pale orange shirt with a winged collar. Wouldn't it be splendid on Nick? It's from England, and before that, Egypt. Or this, they call it Nile Blue. Nick tried to laugh. Daisy clapped her hand for the colors, and Gatsby threw great handfuls of shirts down towards us. There was something here directed at Nick, but before I could figure it out, the shirts tumbling down spun and stretched out wings, sleeves stretching into long and graceful necks. As a dark blue shirt Gatsby had named Faience from London spun past me, I caught a glimpse of a mother of pearl button eye before it swept up to the glass skylight above, followed in turn by the rosy plum from Paris and the lemonade yellow from Quebec. We gaped as the shirts flew around our heads, a rush of fabric rising up towards the gray glass sky. I saw Daisy close her eyes, but I watched as they gained the ceiling and then freedom just a shower of shattered glass away, they fell back defeated as shirts, falling back to the ground limp and disappointed. Gatsby opened his hands like a stage magician and Daisy clapped, her eyes filled with strange tears. It struck me that there was something in her that seemed to want to speak, to cry out perhaps in protest or in question, but she only smiled, smiled. What beautiful shirts they were, she cried, but for a moment they had been birds. Mm. Maureen Corrigan is still with us. Uh, Maureen, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, that scene that Nee just read and how it relates to the original, The Great Gatsby. Oh, it, it, you know, that's a scene that I think stays in everyone's mind after they read Gatsby. It's, it's so, it's so excessive and lush. And um, I love, I love how Nee talks about the shirts transforming into birds. You know, one of the things about that scene that many people ask is why does Daisy start crying when uh, Gatsby is, he's showing off his, his shirts to her as he's giving her a tour of his house for the first time. And, you know, there's so many different responses to that question. Why did she starts crying and she's saying, they're such beautiful shirts as she's sobbing. And one, um, one person who read my book wrote to me and had such a fabulous reading of that scene. He said, you know, if you read it closely, the cabinet where the shirts are described is described as hulking. I'm sorry, where the shirts are stored is described as hulking. And if you go back to, to the first chapter, one of the first adjectives that's used to describe Tom Buchanan is the word hulking. And this, this correspondent said, you know, I think Daisy is crying because she realizes that the poor boy she first fell in love with no longer exists. And in fact, Gatsby, in becoming wealthy, in becoming excessive and sort of proud of his possessions, has, has moved closer to becoming like her husband, Tom Buchanan. And I thought that was amazing. And it's an example of you know, who knows if it's right, but it's an example of how tightly constructed this novel is. Um, I, I had the privilege of looking at Fitzgerald's copy of the, of the first edition of The Great Gatsby, which is in Princeton. It's the first printing of the first edition. And Fitzgerald was making penciled corrections and changes to that first printing which then showed up in the second printing. Um, he never, he never, he always was trying to get it right and writer, you know, and he, he was so obsessive about the language, the gorgeous language of this novel, that I think there may be something to that interpretation of the shirt scene. 
Hmm. What do you think about Ani's decision to retell the story with Jordan Baker as the main character, as a queer Vietnamese American? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, 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 I love. I love that way of imagine. I love what Nice says about Jordan is a character who sees more than she expresses. And so this, this idea of giving her a chance to express more of what she sees and also to sort of underscore the outsider position of Jordan by, by making her a, a, a Vietnamese American adoptee, you know, someone who, you know, has that sort of um, dual focus, I think is, is really useful. I mean, I, at, like me, I agree, all these characters are reflecting each other. So Jordan reflects Nick in terms of sort of standing to the side. And both Nick and Jordan reflect Gatsby. I mean, he's an outsider at his own parties. He shows up late to his own parties. So it, um, one of the things I didn't like about the Baz Luhrmann version of uh, film of Gatsby was that I thought Leonardo DiCaprio looked way too comfortable as Gatsby. Gatsby is a guy who's not even comfortable in his own skin. But um, certainly it... it I, I, I haven't had the opportunity to read Nee's novel yet, but I look forward to doing so because, you know, Gatsby contains multitudes and have at it. <laughs> That's my attitude to, to um, <laughs> these reimaginings of Gatsby's potential. Mm. Nee, your book, The Chosen and the Beautiful, just came out. Uh, as you were writing, were you worried at all about uh, the, the reviews from Gatsby fans about, you know, why you're retelling it in this way? Um, I think for every new writer, there's a certain terror of that. Um, <laughs> I have just mostly stayed away from reviews because it just seems healthier for me. But throughout it, and you know, with the guidance of my my agents and my editor, who were tremendously kind during the during um, the entire course of it, um, what I tried to remember is that if The Great Gatsby is anything, especially as it is positioned in uh, American canon and in its position in the United States school system. This novel, more than anything, is a gift. It was something that was given to me when I was when I was a teenager, and I think if that happens, there is a unique sense of ownership that comes with that. It is it is precious. It is beautifully written. It is uh, something like about forty thousand words of amazing, lovely language, and it was offered to us, and it was offered to us to bring inside us to help us grow and to make us who we are. So that was sort of the theme that I took I took forward, and I hope it's one that other people take as well. You're hearing Nevo, author of The Chosen and the Beautiful. Maureen Corrigan is also here, book critic for NPR's Fresh Air, as we talked with her about the legacy of The Great Gatsby. We'll continue talking right after the break. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking with author Nevo about her debut novel, The Chosen and the Beautiful. It's a retelling of The Great Gatsby from the perspective of Jordan Baker. Vo has reimagined the 1920s classic and made Baker, who, who she's written as a queer Vietnamese American, the main character. Uh, Nia, I'm wondering if you can talk more about how you approached race and class in the dialogue of your novel, how other Asians are portrayed. I'm thinking about the passages where you mentioned something called the Manchester Act. The Manchester Act is um, in the novel is something that is it, it is imaginary. Um, I've, I've already had people uh, talk about Googling it and not finding anything. It's actually a throwback to the Immigration Act, uh, the ones that targeted Asian Americans in the in the years just before the novel's publication, and um, and uh, as the novel came out, um, these were acts that restricted um, immigration from Asia into the United States. And there were acts that made it very clear who was and was not welcome to this country. And they had a great deal of, and they had the effect of affecting a great deal of violence onto the, the, Asian, the Asian population in America at the time. And what I wanted to create with Jordan um, was someone who could perceive that violence and at the same time was rich enough that she could mostly ignore it if she wished to do so. Um, the To me, in The Great Gatsby, there is like I said, a lingering shadow of something that is coming, something much darker. And um, that is something that the music and the magic and the light, they all hide very well. And um, I feel that in some cases with being Asian American uh, at this point, there is something about that that feels very relevant, that feels very, very frightening to me. And at the same time, it feels like it feels like being in the light as well as some like something that is actually getting more visibility. You know, in recent years, we talk more often about microaggressions. And as I was reading your book, uh, the way that Jordan talks about the way the staff at the Plaza Hotel looked at her or even uh, Myrtle, Myrtle's husband, uh, um, how she tried to avoid him as well. There is this feeling that they that she is a foreigner and not welcome. Yes, and part of being Asian American in general is to be a perpetual foreigner. It is a position that I think there are about as many viewpoints on as there are Asian Americans. Um, it depends on how long you've been in this country and how you've chosen to take it and how you've chosen to position yourself as well. And for Jordan, that is something that she has chosen, the idea that being visible and being a perpetual foreigner is far better than being ignored. Mm. Maureen, I wanted to go back to you, Maureen Corrigan, as we talk about just the parallels. Uh, we're thinking about the jazz age in the 1920s. We're now in the 2020s. Uh, uh, we're coming out of a pandemic. Uh, some of the parallels that you see of, of, of how a society uh, wants to react after a great crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we usually talk about the Great Gatsby as um, and the 1920s as being a reaction to the end of World War One, that you know the great national party begins. But I think these days, now that we've had the experience of ourselves of being through the pandemic, um, we also have to remember that that these characters have also been through the great flu epidemic and um, the great epidemic of 1918. You know, so Fitzgerald himself uh, was touched by that epidemic. And I think the characters on the one hand, right, they want to let loose and have a great time. And again, keep in mind that the present time of the novel um, 
that the novel is talking about is 1922. So everything is, is fairly recent. And, um, and yet at the same time, there is that sense, as Nee says, that something darker is coming. A, a lot of critics, myself included, cre credit for Fitzgerald with being prescient. And um, for instance, Gatsby's funeral in the novel actually very much anticipates Fitzgerald's own funeral in 1940. But the last third of the novel um, is, 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 is dark, is mournful. And there's a sense, as people have said, that um, Fitzgerald is almost sensing that this wild national party of the 1920s is going to come crashing to the end. Perhaps listeners will remember that there's a point at which the lights in Gatsby's mansion go out. And, you know, I, I, I don't think it's too much to say that Fitzgerald is sensing that the lights on the great national party of the 1920s, they're, they're eventually going to go out as, as they do. Maureen Corrigan, it's been a pleasure to talk with you to learn more about the legacy of The Great Gatsby and why you love it so much. She's book critic for NPR's Fresh Air, and she's the author of So We Read On, How The Great Gatsby Came to Be and Why It Endures. Maureen, thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you, Lucy. It's really been fun. And if you're looking for a great new summer read, you've read The Great Gatsby, pick up The Chosen and the beautiful uh, Nevo, our other guest. It's her debut novel, a, a beautiful retelling of The Great Gatsby. And we can't wait to hear uh, what else you have in store, Nee. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Karma Baskoff produced today's show. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. And Hannes Brown composed our theme music. We hope you have a great weekend.